Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. Is each generation an improvement on the previous one? Are people living today the apex of human progress? In practical terms, most of us intuit the problems of Western idealism. Even so, we continue to cling to assumptions about human progress that cripple our ability to hear the wisdom handed down to us in the Bible. Nowhere is this more keenly felt than in Hebrews chapters 11 and 12. Some might say, we stand on the shoulders of giants. For the sake of wisdom, it may be more helpful for us to tremble in the shadow of mighty ancestors. You're listening to the Bible as literature. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 50 of the Bible is Literature podcast. It is our New Year's episode. It's our first program of 2015. And I'm very excited to report that at the end of December in 2014, we hit a milestone, a major milestone for this podcast of 100,000 downloads. Very exciting. For those of you who have stuck with the program thus far, we're very thankful to have you as part of our listening community. And we hope that you'll continue to find value in the podcast in the coming year. And for those who are just discovering the podcast, you can look forward to our back catalog of 50 episodes that you can enjoy after hearing this one. So today, what we want to look at specifically is Hebrews chapter 11 and the beginning of chapter 12, this famous passage that deals with the meaning of trust in scripture faith and trust are synonymous in scripture and the implications of the faith of previous generations for the present generations culminating in this very famous verse about the cloud of witnesses and i think typically when people hear these readings they approach it with a kind of western framework where we believe in the concept of progress, where we believe that each generation is an improvement over the previous generation. Not only is this empirically untrue, I mean, we may have fancier gadgets, but the idea that the current generation is better than the previous generation is a construct. It's not true on the biological level. It's certainly not true on the social level when you look at the difficulties in our institutions and in our communities. I mean, you could even make the case, I'm skeptical of this case, but you could even try to make the case just, you know, looking anecdotally at the world today, that things have gotten worse, not better. In any case, they approach this text with this mentality, this Hegelian mentality, the notion of progress, and they view the long list of names and all of the accomplishments of these different characters as leading up to the present day, as though the people living today are better off and the apex of some sort of progression. But that's not what's happening here, is it, Dr. Benton? No, you alluded to this, Father, and I want to emphasize this, that the way that this has always been translated, faith is the substance of things hoped for, through faith, by faith, by faith, and it's this word faith. 
Now, the way that we understand faith in the modern world is faith is like a cluster of beliefs, a cluster of statements, of dogmas. But in Greek, pistis, which is the word that this is translated from, is also trust. So when I read this, I think the best way of understanding the meaning is to, instead of faith, read trust. Trust is the substance of things hoped for. Through trust, we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God. We trust that this is the case. When I force my daughter to study French, I don't have to have trust that this is helpful because I have evidence in my own life that this was helpful. So I know that it's a helpful thing. But my daughter has to trust that this is the case. She has to trust me that what I'm saying is true. Now, I can show from my life, I can say, see, when I lived in Morocco, it was very helpful. See, I was able to learn these things when I was in grad school because I knew French. And this is the testimony of what trust can bring. But still, this is testimony. It's not something she's directly experienced. So throughout this passage, we read that by trust, these people did these things and that this is then a testimony for us. And so when they do these things, we're supposed to understand that this is a way that we can gain from their experience. They trusted and they gained something or they trusted and they didn't gain something. But we understand later that this was the correct thing. So now we have an advantage because we saw what they were able to do. So I found it interesting how it mentions that the people didn't even know what was gonna be the result. By faith, I'm going to translate by trust. By trust, Noah being warned of God of things not yet seen, moved with fear, prepared an ark, the saving of his house, by which he condemned the world. But notice it says, warned of God of things not seen yet. God says, you need to do this thing because something was going to happen. Now, this thing that was going to happen had never been seen in the history of humanity. So why would Noah believe this? Why would Noah trust that God made any sense? But he did trust, and it did come to pass. In the next verse, in verse 8 of chapter 11, by trust, Abraham, when he was called to go out into a place which he should after receive for an inheritance, obeyed. So this is talking about when he was in Ur of Chaldea and was brought into the land. And he went out not knowing whither he went. He was told this was going to be his inheritance. He was told he was going into this new land with no family, with no ties, with no ways of keeping himself alive. And he was going to be brought into this place. But he trusted, and things went according to God's plan. You know, it's striking as you're reading through this, and each time I hear this text in Hebrews, I immediately call to mind Psalm 78. And there are other texts like this in the Older Testament, but this beautiful expression that the work of bearing witness to the teaching, of walking according to the teaching, of proclaiming the teaching, is so that the generation to come might know of God's instruction. Literally, even the children yet to be born, the generation not yet born. And the reason that this pops into my head is because it's very much like the agrarian metaphors in scripture. A farmer goes out to sow his seed. You don't know what's going to happen at harvest time. You may lose your entire crop. It could be wiped out by pestilence, by weather. I mean, you don't know what's going to happen, but you do the work trusting and hoping, which is where Paul begins this section of Hebrews. 
it's the same with children not yet born, because ultimately that's what Scripture is dealing with, the coming generations. They're doing work for the sake of the generation addressed by this text. So we're definitely being set up for some kind of judgment, because from the perspective of these characters, Abraham and Noah and so forth, you, the addressee, is the generation that was not yet born, the children that they were slaving for, that they would never see, yet they never lost hope, and they always kept faith slash trust that God's teaching would produce something. Thank you very much for that metaphor of planting the seed, because in Hosea, this is the metaphor that really brings everything crashing down on the Israelites, because they don't plant the seed, do the work, and then trust that God's going to bring what God brings. They want to supplement God's ability to bring the increase. So they worship other gods and they pay a military to protect what they have, even to their own detriment, because they don't trust fully that God is going to provide everything. And so this is what Hosea is really getting upset with the people about. It really is focused on that agrarian lifestyle. But as you mentioned, this is also a metaphor of what it means to plant, do your work, and trust that you're going to get as much as you're going to get and that what you're going to get is going to be precisely the correct amount. And Paul is showing you here in Hebrews that for each character, each generation, each actor in Scripture that placed their trust, they didn't necessarily get a good deal. They didn't live to see the harvest time. They didn't live to see the outcome of their labors. And many of them died, you know, terrible deaths. In verse 13, these all died trusting, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off and were persuaded and embraced and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. They didn't belong to a particular place. Right. They didn't master a certain geography. They understood that they were only visiting God's land and that God was the ruler of the land and God was the one who declared them citizens or didn't declare them citizens. But afar off, they trusted that the thing that was supposed to happen was going to happen. So what they're doing is in the present moment, doing the thing that is correct, trusting that down the line, whatever needs to happen is going to happen. But because, as Paul says in the subsequent verses, what they're hoping for is the heavenly city. This is Galatians again. It's the Jerusalem above. They're interested not in Zion in a materialistic sense. They're interested in the kingdom that is posited by the instruction in which they place their trust and all their hope, which from a human perspective, doesn't look like anything. No one can see the city that was prepared for them. We have no evidence that they could reach this place. It's a very ominous text. Well, and speaking of that, it's moving towards the present generation, but not necessarily in the way that we expected to. In verse 17, by trust, Abraham, when he was tried, offered up Isaac, and he that had received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said that in Isaac shall thy seed be called. So, Abraham knows that the Lord said, and Isaac will be your seed, and then he's told to go kill Isaac. He trusts, all right, God knows what he's doing. Accounting that God was able to raise him up even from the dead, from whence also he received him in a figure. But what's fascinating there is Paul is showing that trusting, not that there is a resurrection of the dead. What he's trusting is that God said, my seed would come from Isaac. God said, kill Isaac. Okay, I trust God's gonna work that one out. That doesn't seem possible to me, but 
we'll let God do it. I am simply going to obey without having to chip in with my own two cents on whether I think the plan is a good one or not. Because the good book tells me that I should not trouble myself with things that are too great and too marvelous for me. Your daughter could spend all this time trying to figure out whether she agrees with you that studying French will be to her benefit. But if she wastes time developing a theology of French, she's not going to learn French. And then she's going to be out of luck when the Lord comes and decides to give the final exam in French. <laughs> so it's, it, I mean, you know, that's, that's the idea. We have, to, we have to really stick to the language of the text as opposed to the language that we bring to the text. Mm -hmm. Right. By trusting, Moses, when he was born, was hid three months of his parents because they saw that he was a good child and they were not afraid of the king's commandment. So this is what's interesting, too. Moses' parents were bold. Were bold. They chose not to trust in the commandment of, he says king here, but the commandment of Pharaoh, but to trust that God would take care of life and the next generation in spite of what the human king, Pharaoh, promised was going to happen. Absolutely. So we see this happening again and again. Paul is moving this direction where the people do not trust in the power of death. They do not trust in the power of the king, but instead they hope for a heavenly kingdom which they see afar off, which they themselves may not be able to reach. Like exactly. Martin Luther King Jr. says, I may not make it there with you, but seeing afar off, this is where things are going. And acting accordingly and walking in the path that's leading to that ultimate point. Choosing rather to endure ill treatment than to enjoy the passing pleasures of Pharaoh's court, considering the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt. For he endured as seeing him who is unseen. By trusting, he kept the Passover, knowing that God would protect the firstborn through his trust. By trusting, he passed through the sea as though on dry land, through trust, he knew that God would drown the Egyptians. Through trust, he wasn't afraid of Pharaoh's strength, Pharaoh's dominion. It's very clear that the way you overcome the tyranny of death is by just trusting that God will provide. And it's such a repetitive theme in Scripture. Why are you afraid of these bullies? There's only one bully you should be afraid of, and his throne is in the heavens, and the earth is his footstool. Right, and verse 32 sums this up perfectly. And what shall I more say? For the time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets. He says, I don't even have time to list all the people who demonstrated to us that by trusting, the correct outcome would come to pass. So they have shown us that functioning correctly today, according to the teaching, according to the will of God expressed in this teaching, will eventually produce the results that need to be. And you may or may not even be around to see those results. But the correct thing is to follow the teaching today, trusting that God knows what he's talking about, that this teaching is something that's worth its metal. Exactly. Now, you skip ahead to verse 35, Paul shifts gears into this classic shaming paradigm. And unfortunately, I think it's very difficult for people to see that in 35 forward he's shaming them because we listen to this as though it's an heroic victim text, but it, that's not what it's about. So let's listen to verse 35. Women received back their dead by resurrection, and others were tortured, not accepting their release so that they might obtain a better resurrection. Others experienced mockings and scourgings, 
Yes, also chains and imprisonment. So it's not just that these guys were serving through trust with no guarantees. They were serving through trust or by their trust in the Torah, and they were getting the short end of the stick because of it. And we already heard Paul talk about how Moses, in abdicating the wealth of Pharaoh's court in favor of suffering with his own people, was partaking in the teaching of Jesus Christ, something that he had not seen or heard, but through his obedience and his trust to the instruction was already there, so to speak. It goes on, they were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were tempted, they were put to death with the sword, they went about in sheepskins, in goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, men of whom the world was not worthy. It sounds like 1 Corinthians now. Paul shaming the church because he and the other apostles with him are being treated poorly while the Corinthians are living comfortably as though the whole tradition of the gospel leads up to their enjoyment. And this is where he's going to go in for the kill at the beginning of chapter 12. Wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. And all these, having gained through approval their trust, did not receive what was promised because God had provided something better for us so that apart from us, they would not be made perfect. Now, this is the dig. It sounds like... Paul is saying they need you but that's not what he's saying is it right right no what it's saying is that they from every standard you would apply got the short end of the stick but this had an outcome that now there would be a generation who would see where it was all leading up to the gospel we now have received the full gospel and they never got to have the full gospel because they never got to actually see this testimony. And yet, like Christ, they were scourged, they were afflicted, they were ill-treated, they were mocked and so forth without actually having the cross preached to them. Yet, they trusted. For your sake, so that the instruction and the faith of Abraham would be handed down to you. So the question you should be asking is not how special I am and how all these previous generations need me or are meaningless without me, you should be asking, what am I going to do about this? Because that's an awful lot of pressure. Mm -hmm. What have I done with my life? It's a shaming. No, it is. It's like a golf scramble where you have a team of people playing golf and the person before you hits the ball and it ends up inches away from the cup and you tap into the cup and you say, I am the culmination and the perfection of my team. No, you tapped the ball two inches because everyone before you was shooting the ball in order to get it closer and closer, and you just took the final step. And if you didn't, if your team was able to get you that far and you couldn't get it across the line, how can I say this? You'd be the butt of the joke if you screwed it up. Everyone would hate you. They'd blame you. We did all this. And you couldn't even tap it over the line. And if you do tap it over the line, it's not like, yay, you won the game. It's like, well, of course... You should have tapped it over the line, you moron. Exactly. I mean, exactly. You, you would have to be you would have to be drunk to miss that shot. Right. The perfection is that these people of generations before were hoping that one day there would be this heavenly Jerusalem, this heavenly city that one could enter. Everyone else has been hoping for this day, and here we are at the threshold. We're lucky by God's grace that we happen to be in this generation. Right. So in chapter twelve, verse one. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, 
They are surrounding us, looking at us. This is not a cheerleading squad. Yeah, they're not clapping for us. You can do it. We're almost <laughs> there, Johnny. No. They're standing there saying, okay, we offered our life. We gave everything because of our trust in this promise that was given to Abraham. Not even knowing if or when this day would come. Correct. So now we're just going to watch to wait and see what you're going to do about it. And that's why Paul uses this athletic metaphor. Let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes parenthetically as they did, not having known or seen or heard the name Jesus. Mm -hmm. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our trust, who for the joy set before him endured the cross despising the shame and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. It's like a relay in the Olympics, you know. No matter how well the first three people do, if that fourth person trips, you lose. I mean, Paul is saying, don't muck it up. You run like heck because everyone got you in the position you're in right now. And they didn't know how well you're going to run. They could have run a record for their leg. And you tripped and they lost. They had to run trusting person two, person three, and person four that they would eventually cross that finish line. But they could not run with the knowledge that their speed was going to make them win. They didn't have that opportunity. And they could have broke their leg getting that fast time that was unheard of before. But now there's that much pressure on us to put aside every weight and run as hard and as fast and as long as we can, knowing that all these people who came before us are witnessing that it can be done. You're the one who gets to see the finish line in front of you. Are you going to continue to run with the strength and the hope that the people who came before you ran? Can you live up to the towering example of your ancestors? Or are you going to be the lame postmodern generation that doesn't go to social gatherings, doesn't have any duty to anything except yourself and wimps out? Or are you going to be the generation that sees the hard work and the mighty greatness of those who came before you and decides to do something about it and carry the ball forward? That is a fantastic question to ask at the start of the new year. Entering in the new year with trust. I don't want to be the guy that screws up all this effort across all the generations. So, Happy New Year, Dr. Benton. Happy New Year, Father. You take care, buddy. We'll see Bye. you. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening.